This is the EPLOG audio experience. You are listening to the artist podcast with me, Sajita. Stay tuned. Guy Bizon is an experienced media and entertainment analyst and commentator with in-depth knowledge of the international television business across the entire industry value chain. He was part of the panels at the Berlin Film Festival 2023. Hi guys, welcome to the 120th episode of the Artist Podcast with me, Suchita, as I try and dig into dynamic changes in the content supply chain during the pandemic, a trend from customer acquisition to retention for the streamers, competition for movie makers from short-form content, distribution and monetization of independent films post the pandemic, artificial intelligence and movie making now, Squid Games, SVOD, TVOD, AVOD and more from the streamers and distribution perspective. So stay tuned and enjoy the conversation. Hello, guy. Welcome to a podcast, The Artist, and uh, thank you for joining in and uh, being part of this uh, conversation right after the Berlin Film Festival. You were part of the panel discussion there, and I, I thought we can just start from a bit of prediction in the trends when it comes to movies and streaming. A couple of trends that you noticed after the festival became physical, literally two years while we were in the pandemic. Yes, I mean, there, there are lots, there, there have been lots and lots of changes during that pandemic. Um, <clears throat> and some of them indeed driven by the fact that much of the world was in lockdown. So clearly streaming services during that time um, became much more prevalent um, <clears throat> during that two years. All of the studios who hitherto had been content suppliers moved into direct-to-consumer streaming um, themselves and thus became competitive with the likes of Netflix. But that also yeah. impacted the content supply chain because they increasingly held back content exclusively for their own platform. So <clears throat> the whole dynamic of the way the business works, particularly in reference to the to markets where content is bought and sold, completely changed during the pandemic. Um, <clears throat> that trend, of course, is ongoing, but I think we're seeing a bit of pullback from that at the moment um, as the competitive dynamic has shifted from one of very rapid customer acquisition to one of customer retention, so keeping customers that you've already mm -hmm. acquired on the platform um, and that means that the type of content that is being used is very very different so when we're talking about the trends that's going to happen post the pandemic 
the competition that's coming from all the other forms of content, like the short forms, the creators' economy, the gamers. Where do you see the movie market and the movie consumption fitting in? Yeah, that's a, a very interesting question. And depending on who you ask in the industry, I think you'll get very different answers. Um, mm -hmm. It's very clear that TikTok uh, and other social media and short form platforms are competition for viewing. Um, whether they're competition in terms of the type of content engagement and, and the entertainment value that you get from that type of content versus a movie or longer form piece of television, that is out for debate. <clears throat> Either way, there's no question that they are attention draws for uh, particularly a younger audience and, and thus the eyeballs are migrating there. And indeed, we can see in terms of advertising spend, uh, when advertising is wrapped around video and when we look at where the money is going, it is overwhelmingly going to social media and short-form platforms at the moment. Um, I think, again, with the short-form and social media is somewhat ahead in terms of its development cycle versus the transition of the film and TV business to streaming. Now, that may sound strange because, of course, everyone is familiar and, and many people have Netflix and other platforms. So the transition has occurred um, it's just that it's happened much more quickly with short form. Um, but I do think it's a very specific demographic where that competition for viewing is occurring. And so the risk is around the younger audience um, not, I guess, returning to or indeed ever engaging in the way that perhaps older people did with the film and TV business. I actually personally don't think that's an issue. I think they're very different types of content. They're enjoyed in very, very different ways. And we certainly see that young people are engaging with streaming platforms and the opportunities for content consumption that that brings. So while um, it's certainly not something to be ignored, I do think it's a, an, enough of a different sector that we can consider it somewhat separately to the traditional film and TV business, which is still going from, frankly, from strength to strength. Can I tell me, all the films that are getting picked up, for example, at the Berlin Film Festival, are all these films ending up in sales for the consumption of the viewer? Well, at some point, um, one would hope that they end up somewhere in the value chain. So um, the, the point of Berlin and other uh, film festival markets is to is is multitude of, of uh, reasons to go there. One is to pitch a completely brand new project that someone will hopefully partially fund. Um, but then there's also opportunities to sell uh, finished content and projects that are much more further advanced. Not, not everything is going to get uh, sold or picked up at these events. Mm. Um, but certainly many of the movies that you see that premiere at Berlin will crop up in one of the windows of exploitation. Um, and when we talk about windows, it's a sequential from the cinema onwards. So the, the cinema window through the transactional window, which is traditionally with DVDs and videos, increasingly that's digi digitally done, and then through the subscription window. So yes, most or many of the movies that you see at Berlin will crop mm. up somewhere 
along that life cycle, uh, if not in a multitude of those windows. As a recently held Sundance Festival, festival guy, there were 15,000 films of various durations like short films, documentaries and feature-length films that got submitted. And there were 4,000 feature-length films. And out of those 4,000, there were 200 films that got selected in the festivals. Being somebody in the trade guy, and this is the podcast that I did in the last episode, being in the trade guide, what is your sort of suggestion, advice when you see so much of content? What happens to the remaining films out of 200 films that get selected and 4,000 do not? What happens to the rest of those 4,000 films that are getting piled up every year? Are they getting into some OTT platforms? Are they uh, getting into other festivals? Are they even getting seen by the audience? Uh, Are they getting even seen by the festival themselves when they go for selection? Well, it's... As I say, there are a number of festivals where one can pitch and take projects. So yeah. not not being selected for one or not getting picked up by anyone at one doesn't mean that the door is then closed. Mm. Um, that's the way the film financing business works. One trawls around festivals and other markets looking for um, interested parties who are going to pick up or partially fund or somehow contribute to that movie, either getting made or getting um, licensed to mm. uh, someone on one of the platforms. So um, it's not a straightforward answer. The answer is many of them will get picked up elsewhere at other festivals and events. Some of them uh, may fall by the wayside, but it's not off the back of one event. You get a big pile up. It's, it's the nature of the game that one pitches around a multitude of opportunities. But Guy, when we're talking about getting attention of the audience, there is already so much competition. Do you feel that there is more creation of the content? And when I talk about content, specifically the films uh, versus the consumption of those films, do you think that the filmmakers are just happy taking their 5D cameras because digital shoots are cheaper? Do they need to be more careful there? Well, I don't. Um, we may be talking about different qualities of content, but I don't think um, many films get made without uh, the funding in place to make them, and thus they they should be runners and riders in terms of the potential to get acquired or picked up uh, further along the line. So, um, for making movies is a very expensive business, as you know. Um, and generally one would get a good proportion of the funding in place before anything is done in terms of actually creating that movie. So I don't, we may be talking at cross purposes, but for the sort of big movies and projects that you see pitched up at Berlin, um, they will already have a pretty good idea of where their market is going to be and what the potential to sell that movie is. Um, yes, there's a lot of content out there and certainly you can't just decide one day you're going to make a movie, pick yeah. up a camera and shoot it. Um, there's a whole process that one goes through to get buy-in from everyone from the talent to the people who are going to fund yeah. the movie yeah. to the people who are going to distribute the movie potentially um, that has to be done before you even pick up a camera, frankly. Yes, that's something that the filmmakers need to pay attention to. Tell me, Gar, with your experience and the company uh, you have co-founded, Ampere, what should the makers 
the streamers and the festivals be watchful of when we're talking about the next coming years after after you went through the EFM? Again, it's a, it's a multifaceted question. Um, clearly, the uh, drivers in the industry are shifting. Um, the pandemic it created lots of change, particularly around the theatrical window. So traditionally, one one would always want a theatrical release for a movie if that was at all possible. That was how its value was determined uh, when it was later sold further down the chain. So um, the value of a movie was often attributed to its box office performance. Uh, during the pandemic, there was a lot of change around particularly director streaming for movies. And of course, Netflix has been pushing that model as well uh, with its original movies, uh, taking them, often skipping a theatrical window. So there's lots of things to be thinking about in terms of how one positions and values a movie, Mm -hmm. Um, whether one um, feels that a theatrical window is essential, uh, important or not important at all. And again, it, it will depend on the way that the funding has been set up. If a Netflix or, or equivalent comes along and wishes to fully fund in return for um, all rights, all rights to that movie, and, and that doesn't necessarily involve a theatrical release, then that is a, a model that is now open to people. Um, so apart from understanding the market changes and the dynamics that are out there in terms of how films get made and how they get valued, um, it's also thinking about how the Hollywood majors have changed during this period of the of the last few years. Yeah. Um, their movie slates are very, very different from how they were five or ten years ago. Um they're much less involved than they were in what we would have called independent films, uh, much more focused on franchise movies, which are uh, movies where you can have version five, six, seven, eight, etc. Um, often involving superheroes, but things like Fast and Furious, uh, also um, uh, and Pirates of the Caribbean, also strong franchise movies. So. Um, Increasingly, we're seeing the big studios play it safe with uh, known intellectual property. Uh, often that's a, a movie series or franchise, but sometimes it's an adaptation of a, a big uh, comic or, or superhero movie. And, and so I think there is more opportunity, perhaps, um, for smaller producers to fill the gap that has been left by some of those studios moving away from the type of movies that they used to make. Yes, they've always made the big blockbusters and that was always an important part of the annual slate, but they really have taken a step away from some of those more um, uh, story-led and character-led independent uh, non-franchise, non-superhero movies. So lots of opportunity there potentially to make up for that. Mm-hmm. But tell me, Guy, in terms of the independent films, do you see that a certain kind of independent films are getting more traction in sales versus more in the art house space? Do you see there something that is very specific but that's gathering more attention uh, globally? No, it's it's very hard to um, 
you, you, I mean, you can analyze data and you can pick up on trends. Um, and so some things that are particularly popular at the moment are uh, biographical type drama, for example, um, which is partly, I think, due to uh, the, the popularity of social media, of character-led, of influencer-led um, content on social media. People have an interest in individuals that perhaps they didn't have five or ten years ago. So there are areas like that where we can see an upsurge in, in uh, commissioning activity and production activity. But the risk of, of doing that and, and making set such suggestions is that you miss out on the happenstance, which has always been a big part of hit movies, that the, the pro- pro- project that comes out of nowhere that nobody thought would work um, that becomes a massive hit. Um, and there have been many examples throughout the history of movies. Um, so I think it's it's useful to look at trends around where the zeitgeist is in terms of what people are wanting to consume and what people are wanting to fund and commission. But I also think it's important to remember uh, very simply, if it is good and original, it will find a market uh, regardless of what the trends and the data say. So data only takes you so far. I've been getting a lot of calls in terms of AI. Everyone is sort of using it in terms of script writing, in terms of script analyzing, and the studios are like even jumping on it. Do you think it's something that movie makers, content creators should go for to get their movie scripts analyzed before it gets into a studio zone? Yeah, to what degree studios are really using it to analyze scripts, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I can see how it could be useful um, to summarize, so for, for the AI to summarize the scripts and the key plot points, which obviously can save the, the reader a lot of time. Um, and if it's set up properly, then AI is quite good at that sort of thing. Um as a complete replacement for uh, a human being, I, I don't think we're there anywhere close yet, and I would consider that a dangerous um, pathway to go down with the current technology that we have out there in terms of AI. It, it's really good at taking the burden out of burdensome, burdensome tasks, but it, I'm not sure it goes quite far enough to actually be able to say, make a script selection. Yes, create a summary for the reader, kick, pull out the key points, summarize the plot, that, that it can do very well. But um, I wouldn't want to go further than that at this stage. Of course, AI is also being used in many other ways in terms of production um, to create... Um, movie scenes and movie sets and, and environments, etc., etc. So there's a lot of technology that is gradually coming online through that um, portal. But um, still, I think we're, we need the human input, especially at the script stage and the selection stage, because um, that's where you could, again, as I said before, miss out on some of those really uh, unique projects that uh, might otherwise slip through the net. 
Guy, I read about this article again with regards to EFM that there's a major trend when it comes to unscripted and non-fiction, uh, even the docu-series. Do you see a trend, this trend increasing in the next couple of years? Do you see uh, they coming uh, uh, at par with fiction series and features? Yeah, that's been a trend for a while. And again, it, it accelerated during the pandemic because it was, of course, incredibly difficult to make some of those scripted productions that tended to be more international um, involved many more people coming together for their creation. Um, so unscripted anyway was trending upwards, given a turbo boost by the pandemic, and has continued to be a very strong area for new commissioning in the television space. Um, also, again, during that period, we saw streamers really jump on the unscripted bandwagon. So, yes, they'd always kind of made documentaries and, and been involved in documentary. They hadn't really been involved in reality TV or light entertainment or game shows or formatable programming, which is actually ideal for global platforms because it's easy to localize Um is also low, much lower cost than a scripted project. Um, and so now that uh, that point I was making at the beginning of this podcast about uh, moving from acquisition, customer acquisition, viewer acquisition to retention, uh, unscripted becomes a very efficient and lower cost way to do that because you don't need the very high value content. So to answer the question, yes, this is a trend. Yes, it will continue to be a very strong trend. Um, and yes, we're now at parity in terms of new commissioning activity between scripted and unscripted, whereas before it was about one in every three projects was an unscripted project for new, newly commissioned first-run television. Any global trends, Guy, that you see in markets like in Asia, in US and the Europe, do you see any kind of convergence happening when it comes to trends in the kind of content? Well, we're certainly seeing trends in terms of where content is getting made. Um, so we've seen uh, not a move away from, but a diversification from the US as the be-all and end-all of production, um, driven, in fact, by the streamers, who are, of course, genuinely global platforms, um, as their growth opportunity has shifted away from the US and the big Western markets, We've seen them invest increasingly in new production in first Latin America, um, Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, and increasingly now in particular in Asia, um, which is a very strong grace market for the streamers. And that's why we see the investment move. Um, convergence of content. Yes, um, I think that's been an, on a trend again for some time. Mm. depending again depending on who you speak to um netflix clearly and others make local productions that are in local languages so they might make you know 10 projects this year in india 20 in korea they will be in the local language they will have local talent um and they will be made in those countries but then there's an, a counter argument um, which you often hear from independent producers that says yes they're local and yes they're in the local language with local actors 
but they're of a nature that is global, um, which means they're not truly local stories. They're kind of a glossy, global, po- globally popular theme that happens. Would you to would you say Squid Games is one of that? Would you say Squid Games well, would come in that? Funnily, Squid Squid Games I was going to raise as one of those examples of something that could otherwise slip through the net. <laughs> um, you know, maybe if you'd used an AI to, to analyze the script or um, otherwise not looked at it properly. Um, it, it, yes, it is uh, global in theme, but it's also very local in um, the, the way that that theme is brought out in the, in the plot and the narrative um, with a slightly dark but also slightly comical, I guess, twist to it. Um, so Squid Game is an example of, of one of those sleepers that came out of nowhere. The data shows us very clearly that the first month it was on Netflix, hardly anyone was watching it. Um, it didn't peak until month two and three, actually, and that was purely because it was a classic word-of-mouth show. Oh. Mm. No one had heard of this obscure Korean slightly odd drama um, yeah. and it wasn't promoted by Netflix particularly before it went on air and so no one watched it but then word of mouth saw it peak in months two and three so um, I think there's a convergence in production value in that, that that everyone has been bought up in terms of what's required in terms of production value um, but um slightly less of a convergence in story and narrative because I do think those local voices, stories and narratives are making it through uh, thanks to the streamers who are increasingly producing internationally. But they've raised up the quality of the production, the production values, um, everything from the costumes to the, um, the, the lighting to the, uh, the cameras that are used to the um, the type of talent and the script quality has, has been pushed up by those u- usually US streamers pushing out into the international markets. Mm, right. Okay, coming to VODs. So SVOD, AVOD, TVOD. When we're living in times where we are trying to get the attention of the audience to watch the content, do you see a TVOD going ahead? Do you see a TVOD uh, surviving the market? Do you see uh, people more subscribing and getting the, getting in the SVOD zone? What are your thoughts? Well, yes, there are a multitude of acronyms which um, um, probably warrant some explanation. Um, what we're what we're talking about, though, with all of those acronyms, is is the business model, um, and there are fundamentally well, three. Um, one, as you say, subscription, um, which is the, traditionally the Netflix model. Um, one is advertising, which is platforms like Tubi and Pluto and others. So just advertising is a source of funding. And one is what we call hybrid, which is a mix of the two. Um, and then you could add into that transactional, as you say, TVAD, which is what we used to call pay-per-view. So you just buy a piece of content to watch. Um on its own outside of, of a, a monthly relationship. But what we're seeing is 
a convergence of business models. So again, if we go back five years, streaming was entirely driven by subscription. Then there was a, a splurge of advertising platforms. And, and what we've seen now is that almost everybody, and I would obviously include Netflix in there, Disney in there, HBO, Paramount, all of the big studios are now hybrid. So they have adopted an ad-supported business model as part of their revenue mix. At the same time, we're seeing smaller content owners jump on another bandwagon with another acronym, which is FAST, which is free ad-supported streaming TV. Um, the difference there is that those are linear streaming channels, so they look like a linear broadcast channel, although they are delivered through a streaming platform. Um, where they are interesting is it gives the smaller content owner opportunity for direct monetization. So taking a relatively small content catalog um, and turning it into a channel which loops um, maybe six hours of refreshing content a day uh, and plays out over a streaming platform. Now, you do have to be of a certain scale to do that. So I think the minimum uh, sort of touted around in the industry is around 100 hours of content, but it does open up the opportunity for relatively small producers who maybe have retained uh, an archive and catalogue of their productions to directly monetize through streaming and ad-supported revenue shares through so-called fast channels. So we're seeing a convergence of business models uh, that has followed on from a proliferation of, of different business models. And, and my view is that we're in an interim phase where Everything is getting or appearing to be very, very complex with all these different acronyms and some of them are hybrid and some of them are AVOD and SVOD and TVOD and FAST. Actually, what it comes down to is free TV and pay TV, which is what we always had for the last 30 years. Um, and that's what we will return to. And people won't make the distinction between all these different uh, nuances in terms of delivering that content to the end user because the viewer doesn't care they just care what content can i get do i have to pay for it or do i have to watch ads and that's a simple uh, equation that you make when you decide to view content and that's what the business will realign around yeah, that's lovely. Do I have to pay for it or do I have to watch ads? What is more beneficial, Guy, for a small-time producer who is looking to get his or her money back after putting in a film? Uh, will they ever benefit out of uh, getting into a TVOD? Because SVOD is it's something that, again, you know, everyone doesn't get inside. Yeah, I mean, all of these, again, come down to distribution. So the, the distribution relationship. So let's say that you, you you release your piece of content on a TVAD model, transactional model. Um, people have to be able to find that content. They have to know it's there. Then they have to make a purchase decision. So without the distribution and marketing and the prominence placed behind it that a large platform can give it, it's going to be very difficult to make decent money um, from that. Of course, there are exceptions where you can have a breakout through a social media following, etc. 
but generally it's difficult without good distribution. Um, the same applies to the other models, frankly. Um, yeah. With Avod and Fast, again, you you need a, a, a distribution partner who's going to get that content and, and or channel in front of a, a large user base. So it's it's there's there's no simple answer for a content owner looking to maximise um, revenue from that piece of content, and it's going to vary market by market. What what you need to be looking at is who in that market, as I go into that market to sell my content, has the distribution, um, i.e. The, the viewers, the eyeballs, um, and on what basis can I uh, agree a, a relationship for that distribution? But distribution comes first. Reach, viewers, eyeballs are what's going to drive the money through to the end producer. Um and, and that, var- that varies by market. Yeah, and it's terribly difficult when I talk to a lot of producers to get the eyeballs there for their content, even though the content could be something that can stand out, but still reaching the audience. So it's something people like you can solve for us, you know, <laughs> which is very... I'm not sure we have the answers. We certainly know who the big <laughs> platforms are, um, and that's a decent starting point. But then, of course, it comes down to the deal that you can agree um, with them. But as I say, distribution in this situation trumps everything else. Uh, without that, it's very difficult to monetize um, a piece of content unless it's a, an exceptional breakout piece of content that um, finds a life of its own somehow. Yeah, sure, sure. So that's a problem area for all of us. So hopefully, I don't know, someone will come out with some solution for all of us, for the content creators, movie makers and producers uh, to monetize their content. Uh, Thank you so much, Guy. I really appreciate your time with your sore throat. So the problem remains that how do filmmakers and film producers monetize their content and distribute it on the right platform to reach their right target audience. If you have any answers to this question, please connect with us and we would definitely like to have you on our podcast. Till then, do not forget to follow us on our social media handles, Instagram, Twitter, Metaphysical Lab and our freshly brewed YouTube channel, Metaphysical Lab as well. We have our newsletter coming soon, the first edition in March. The link is provided on our Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn handles of Metaphysical Lab. Take care and have a very happy holy from all of us here at the Artist Podcast.